I always ask them, I say, is there, if, if, if someone were to tell you it can get better and there's a way to do that, if you were just take, take those two statements for granted, it can be better. And there is a way to do that. Would you take them up on it? And they always say, yes. I'm like, okay, well then take me for my word. It can't get better. And there is a way to do it. And part of that means just accepting help. You're listening to Guards Down. This is Greg Washington. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Guards Down. I have with me a very special guest, Patrick Nathans. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Look, we're going to get started. We're going to get in here. Of course, you know, we brought you on because we're talking about PTSD and complicated grief. And the hope is that this conversation will help save a life. Someone could get some some tools to put in their toolkit so that they can fight another day. And so I just want to start and just turn the reins over to you so you can tell us about yourself. I appreciate it, Greg. Um, I share the... The mission and trying to help those who uh, are maybe who, who have thought who've thought about taking their own life or are in a position maybe going down that way. Um, so um, I, I look forward to the opportunity to do that with you. Um, about me, I uh, as you know, I'm uh, a fellow alumnus of of West Point. I graduated in 2001, um, and I spent the next 17 years on active duty, or just short of 17 years on active duty. Uh, I Let's see, did my first four years in, in the infantry, and then I did my remaining 12, 12 plus in the special forces. Uh, I have a couple deployments to Afghanistan, uh, one to Iraq, uh, did some other stuff in South America and when I was in special forces, um, non-combat deployments, and then uh, just spent, spent most of my career in and out of uh, different deployed, deployed zones and um, staying busy. Uh, I came back from my last combat deployment in 2009. And uh, that's shortly thereafter is when I started to have challenges reintegrating back into civilian life um, and spent the next good portion of the next 10 years, which brings us up to to 2020, uh, trying to figure that that experience out. Uh, Happy to say that I've uh, experienced a lot of recovery, although I would say that, um, you know, recovering from um, traumatic injury, uh, emotional traumatic injury is, is a lifetime process. So, um, so that's a little bit about me just in a nutshell. So I'm going to leave it up to you to pry, pry open some of the details and ask questions. I got you. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to pry as much as I can. You know, okay. I, I got to give my hat off to you because, you know, infantry, special forces over a 17 year career, um, that that's a big deal. Right. And so I just sit here and I think about the training that you go through, you know, on a, on a yearly basis to stay that much in shape, to stay mentally like prepared to, to bring the fight to the enemy. So um, can you talk about that real quick before we get into, you know, some of the questions? I will. Absolutely. The, the training was um, I mean, you know how the army is all about training. Right. It's it's if you're you're either fighting or you're training one of the two. Um, and 
the training that we did in, in the infantry and special forces, I went through the standard uh, train up that most, most guys did in the combat arms. So, you know, um, the basic course and went through airborne ranger and then went through, um, you know, uh, special forces assessment and selection in the Q course, which took about a year. Um, but, you know, it, besides those big training events, those big, you know, qualification courses, we, I spent either the majority of my time in training. And I think that's what really prepared uh, me and prepares a lot of soldiers and officers for what they do is, is um, realistic, hard training. And that prepares you. I mean, you're preparing your body, but more than that, you're preparing your mind for what the rigors of what you're going to see in combat. And um, hopefully beyond the training, you're educating yourself on the sorts of environments and challenges that you'll face so that you can adapt uh, to those. Um, and, and I will say that un- the vast majority of the time, the training that I went through from the very beginning at the academy all the way through uh, the captain's career course for special forces and uh, all my special special forces training, all my combat arms training tra- prepared me for what I was going to do in combat. I will say that there were some instances that I was unprepared for because no one really talked to me about. Um, and I, and those, and yeah, so this is a great question that you asked me because those are the things that I think need to be shared with people who are going to be in our next generation of, of combat officers. Um, so, um, and, and that re- for me, that really comes down to the ethics of a lot of what we're doing, the decision-making, the judgment. Um, and I, and you can get at that through training, but you also just need to talk about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> You know, it, it makes me wonder, when you first went into West Point at the age of 17, 18, was your mindset like, all right, when I when I get in this thing, I'm going to be a badass, you know, <laughs> when, when I graduate and, and go into the Army? Uh, I don't know if I wanted, if I was, thought I was going to be a badass, but I hope so. Uh, I did my, uh, my, you know, my dad was in the Navy for 20 years. My grandfather for 28. Um, my other grandfather, uh, did a lifetime, five years in the Navy and then did a lifetime of service in the federal government. Uh, my great grandfather was in the Navy. Everybody was in the military in my family. Uh, and so I wanted to carry on that tradition. I knew early on that I wanted to be in the infantry. I knew I wanted to lead, uh, soldiers in combat. And I had hoped to do that. What that was going to look like, I had no idea. Uh, you know, I graduated three months before 9-11 happened. The, you know, Bosnia and the Kosovo region was the big thing going on at the time. Um, I had no expectation of going to war. And then 9-11 happened. And, and I think we all quickly realized that we were going to spend the rest of our careers in combat. Uh, and I did, to a large portion. I, I always jokingly tell people I have more uh, two-way live fire ranges than I do one-way live fire ranges. I, I think I've been in more firefights than I have been in like training live fires. So um, I don't know. I, w- I certainly got what I wanted. And so one of my, one of my best warrant officers I ever worked with told me, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. And so right. I was definitely look, I was definitely looking to lead my men in combat and I got that experience. Well, look, I, I am, Thankful that you're here and that you're safe and that, you know, you got you and your guys back safe. Um, Thank you. Talking about trauma and grief. So, you know, the military trains you up to prepare for combat, you know. Yeah. That muscle memory, 
were to be able to react to combat very quickly, uh, that whole nine. I know for a lot of soldiers that aren't in a combat arms MOS, um, do not get that type of training. Yes, they don't. I always go back to say, well, you know, um, growing up, did you learn, did the people around you, your parents, teach you how to deal with trauma and grief, you know, growing up? Did, did, did you get any training to prepare you for the shit you were going to face, you know, when you were an adult, as an adult? That's a tough question. I, not directly, no. Uh, I think my family came in many ways from austere origins. And so they had experience handling either poverty or mistreatment uh, or maltreatment, neglect. Uh, And so I think some of those experiences are translatable to the military experience of how to handle uh, uh, times and, or tribulations that, you know, that are, um, where you're not given everything you need or traumatic times. And so, um, you know, self-reliance, uh, independent thought and judgment, those are supremely important, but I know I, I wasn't, I wasn't trained in any of those things. You know, I wasn't, um, inculcated in, in that way of thinking as a kid, uh, growing up, I, uh, was just told, um, I was kind of left to my own devices. So I think in many ways I was, I was slightly uh, ill-prepared for some of the things that I was, I was going to see uh, later on uh, during my combat years. Wow. And uh, I didn't have a lot of people talking to me growing up about how to think about uh, my experiences and how to think about my world in a way that was uh, uh, useful to me. Um, yeah. So I, I think that was probably, I think that was probably an inhibitor for me in a way uh, was that I didn't, I didn't have that. You're the first person to, to say self-reliant, mm-hmm. right? That you had to be mm-hmm. self-reliant, you know, growing up. And mm-hmm. I almost look at that as a gift and a curse at the same time. Absolutely. You yeah. know? I, yeah, it, it is because, it's a gift because it gives you the confidence to know that you can make it through whatever's going to be thrown at you in life. It's a curse because you haven't been taught to how to lean on other people and how to be vulnerable with other people and how to uh, respond to other people's vulnerability. And that is, inc- and when you're not accustomed to that, when you're not used to doing that, when you don't even recognize it, how can you do it? So, you know, I was in, yeah, I mean, I was incredibly self-reliant as a kid because I had to be, I didn't, I didn't really have anything else. And so, um, um, yeah, it, it did make, it made me, it made me, you know, I think that helped carry me through my career and be, and, and helped me be as successful as I was in many ways. Um, but it's, it also impacted me negatively, like as any, as anything else did, um, because I wasn't able to identify the support systems that I did have. Did you go through any traumatic experiences as a kid or were they mostly when you got into the military? No, I definitely had traumatic experiences growing up as a kid. Um, my, my family, the, my, the, 
my sisters and my parents had both been through some traumatic things. And I think you may be familiar with uh, multi-generational trauma and how that trend that passes down through behaviors and thoughts. Um, so I, I definitely, and then I went through some of my own traumatic experiences as a kid uh, that were, I think, you know, I, that I hadn't resolved by the time I got to college and, and really hadn't resolved until after I came home. And I realized that, you know, my old approach to living life wasn't working and I needed help. Uh, and it wasn't just help integrating my combat experiences, but it was integrating everything up to those combat experiences plus everything that I did in combat. And so I had to go back and resolve some of those traumas that I had not never resolved as, as a young kid. Um, and a lot of it just came down to neglect and, um, yeah, things like that. You bring up a great point. Let's talk about the collateral damage of dealing with trauma and grief and if it's not processed. Well, the collateral damage is going to be you and everybody around you. <laughs> just, to, just, just to make this, the, the point short, I saw that as one of your questions here. You talked about is, you know, I heard, I heard everybody when I came home, um, for the most part, uh, in one way or another, more so than I think I would have just by naturally living. Right, I just was ignorant to. Um, how trauma, trauma, trauma is painful, and when you're in that much pain you're looking for anything to ease that pain. And that could mean um, damaging relationships, not following through, taking advantage of those who would offer you assistance, um, being emotionally unstable and unreliable. And that was uh, a lot of collateral damage to the people around me uh, and, and to myself, because I was acting inconsistent with my own beliefs right? I didn't want to behave this way, but yet I still was. And therein lies that contradiction. Why am I behaving in a way that's inconsistent with how I feel like I should be behaving, yet I'm still doing it. And even though I have that insight, I can't stop it. Um, and a lot of it was because it was the unresolved, in many ways, it was, it was unresolved trauma that I hadn't gone through. And, and it was a lot of the beliefs that I had about myself because of those traumas that led me to withdraw from relationships or damage the ones that I did have, even if they were um, good relationships. So being self-reliant, what coping skills did you have to learn on your own? I, I think when I needed, so I, so I had five, so let me give you some context. I came about 2011, I hit rock bottom. I was, uh, I had a major clinical depressive episode. I lost 40 pounds. I started throwing up. I couldn't eat it. I couldn't eat any of my food. I uh, stopped leaving my house. And a friend recognized that something was going on with me and said, do you need help? And I said, yes, I do. And he, so he put me in touch with, uh, a man named uh, Simon Alster. He was a physician at a uh, DOD medical facility in Washington, D.C. area. And uh, interestingly enough, he was a uh, in his late 70s. He was an Orthodox Jew by culture and religion. Uh, and, and so, you know, I never grew up in that environment. So he couldn't have been any more. I mean, couldn't be any more different than me in terms of upbringing and culture and tradition and religion. And I often tell people that he taught me how to be a human again. And, and I, and I think in many ways he taught me how to be, how to have human emotions 
in a way that I never had uh, prior to that. Um, so the coping skills that I had to learn because self-reliance when taken to an extreme can mean acting like a robot. It can mean pushing, not acknowledging your own feelings, not acknowledging the feelings of others, not even recognizing that you have them, an inability to access them. Um, and when you try to hide from bad feelings, you can't selectively turn the switch off and say, I, I you know, I, I'm going to, I don't want these bad feelings. Well, when you do that, you also don't get to access to positive feelings. And then at some point you're saying, well, what's the point of being alive? If I, if there's no pleasure in it, there's no pleasure in being alive. There's no pleasure in relating to another human being. There's no pleasure in drinking a cup of coffee or doing anything simple. You can't even do that. What about, I mean, why even try the big things? It's just too much energy. And so that's the, that's the extreme of self-reliance um, because you, you know, we live in a connected world where our, our number one safety mechanism is our community and the people around us. And so, yeah. So what did I need to learn? What are the coping skills I needed to learn? Too many to list, but one of them was just how to slow down and take stock of myself and how to pay attention to myself and, um, and to cut myself some slack. Uh, I think I used to look at the world in a pretty black and white moralistic way of thinking. And I've found that to be less useful um, as I've progressed through my recovery. The more I, the more I recover, the more I realize that black and white thinking is not useful. Judgment is not useful. And um, those were some key, key things that I had to learn through Dr. Oster and we're in working with him. Indeed, man. Look, you hit on so many really good points. I, was like, I do. I, do. <laughs> I was like, shit, he's on the wrong phone. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to stop you. I mean, it was beautiful. And I, and I appreciate you for, for opening up and sharing because, I mean, like, like you, you hit on, you know, going through and having to shut down those feelings because they're overwhelming and you needed to get a job done and said, okay, wait, well, hey, when you shut these feelings down, you not only shut mm-hmm. the bad ones off, you also shut the good ones. And you do. You yeah. this numb robotic feeling. And I mean, I, I just connected with you. Like, yeah, I, mm-hmm. that was yep. me at one point in life. Yeah. yeah. I, I, re- I remember the day it happened to me. I was in combat in Afghanistan. A teammate of mine had just had just died uh, a, a day before in a pretty um, in a pretty inhumane way of dying in combat. Uh, and we were all myself and my team members were all there with him when he died. And uh, at that moment, when he died on the side of that mountain, uh, we all well, I know for me. I lost all confidence in my ability to keep myself and my men alive. It just evaporated instantly with, with the death of my teammate. And, um, and I don't know why, because we, I had been through 40 or 50 firefights prior to that. I had seen people wounded. There was something particular about that experience and, and being with him when he died that as traumatically as he did, that changed me right there in that moment. And I, I had crippling anxiety from that point forward, I used to get, I used to get sick to my stomach and ill to the point where I, I was having a hard time functioning, but I had six months remaining on the deployment and I didn't have an option. I had to lead my soldiers in combat and keep them alive. And so, uh, some days I, I would continue to go on missions 
and just be ill the whole time. And I realized I couldn't, I had to choose one or the other. I had to choose to keep leading or to keep, or to pay attention to my feelings. And I decided that I had to stop paying attention to my feelings. And that was the day that uh, I think would be sort of the, when I started to go down uh, that day in 2008, um, started to go downhill. Cause I decided, I remember I just said to myself, well, I'm just going to stop feeling these things. I'm just going to stop caring. I'm going to stop caring about whether I live or die. And uh, I did. Uh, you, you can't really ever stop caring. It just, you just dissociate from it. Right. And so it was horrible. That was the day my emotional life really died in a way. And I've had to, ever since then, it's been trying to resuscitate that and bring it back. And um, it's not, it's not like flipping a switch. You can't just turn them all back on. You have to like reprogram your brain, right? There's so much science behind this. What you and I are talking about now has, there's a lot of ephemeral talk about feelings and these things like that, but there's real science behind this real neurological science behind the portions of your brain that are activated and disactivated when you go through these traumatic experiences. And so um, that's also been incredibly helpful at realizing there's a reason behind all this. So yeah, shutting down was horrible. Um, and I'm just, just been trying to bring it back. Yeah. So with you saying that three things come to mind that I, that I want to ask and talk and talk about. Okay. The, the first one is, um, did your, your command or your team, did you guys have any help in processing, you know, like the, the, the trauma, the experience that you went through or was it just nothing? We had no help. We had a chaplain who cared about us, but what's a chaplain? We were a special forces team in a remote fire base. There was 12 of us, I think in 12 of us, maybe 200 Afghan militiamen on a remote base in the deserts of South central Afghanistan. I mean, what was anybody, even if my command wanted to help us, we had a mission to do and we couldn't stop. And what, I mean, who was going to, we were a hundred miles <laughs> from the nearest base, right? Nobody was going to come out to help us. So no, we didn't have anything. I tried to be that for my men. I did. Um, whenever something happened that was out of the norm. Uh, and we had lots of experiences like that out of the norm for combat. So we're talking about extremely out of the norm for, for normal life. Uh, uh, I would, uh, during our daily um, team discussions, I said, Hey, I would, try to bring it up as directly as I could, but you know, you're limited to what you know. And at the time I was pretty limited myself. So, um, no, we didn't, we didn't have a whole lot of help. Um, especially not from any sort of professional. We had each other. That's what we had. Gotcha. Okay. The, and I, and I, and well, just to address that part, right. So, I mean, you guys made it out. So, what you needed in that moment and having each other, essentially that was enough, right? I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of guys, so this is uh, maybe a not often talked about detail of combat, but it was, it was enough. We made it out physically, but I think a lot of guys on my team retired due to PTSD were medically discharged due to PTSD are not doing well in life because of PTSD. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, and this is not an experience that uh, many of my other friends have, but some do is, you know, a lot of the guys on my team didn't particularly like each other, but we loved each other because we fought 
to keep each other alive. So we may not have liked each other in real life, but we would give our, we would risk our lives to save each other. And if that's not weird, I don't know what is, but it makes sense in combat, you know, cause yeah. that's all you've got. Yeah. And, and so we had each other, uh, but it's, I don't think we were best friends in a lot of ways. I think some guys were, um, yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was, and everyone's experience is different. Um, but we relied on each other for what we needed to. And then, and then, um, and then we left. And I, and I think everybody came away from those deployments, um, somehow impacted by that. Gotcha. Okay. And so, what were some of the healthy coping mechanisms that you had to learn from that? And how did you go about reactivating your feelings? Um, healthy coping mechanisms. Exercise has been incredibly important, um, not just because it's, it's healthy um, for your body, but it's actually good for your brain as well. There's a lot of science to back that up and support that, that it helps reactivate a lot of neurological pathways that are shut down in trauma. Um, from, from a very visceral standpoint, you know, we have our, we have our sort of cognitive prefrontal cortex, and then we have the more, the older part of our brain that we don't access. That's not conscious. And so, um, you can access that a lot of that through exercise and, um, and through like dance and yoga and meditation and things like this. And so that is, you know, we've seen a lot of that come out recently in the last decade or so about the benefits of those things has been incredibly important for me. None of these things though, in and of themselves are the golden ticket to, to recovery. It has to be integrative, right? So I had to learn how to, I had to, I didn't know how to identify my own feelings, right? I couldn't tell the difference between the levels of anger that I had, whether it's irritation or uh, being irate or rage or just standard anger, why I was angry, the difference between anger and sadness, what was behind the anger. I didn't, I certainly didn't experience joy. So I had to learn a new lexicon. I had to learn how to talk about my experiences. I had to learn to identify them. Uh, right. So I had to start from the very beginning, almost like a kid, you know, when the kid is acting out and you, and you, as an parent, you're teaching them what, what they're feeling, what those things could be. You're helping them guide them. I had to learn to do that. Yeah. Right? Cause I, sh- I like, you know, I, we, we keep coming back to this thread of, of shutting down. I shut down. And so reactivating that I had to learn the language to talk about it. And then I had to learn how to do it myself. Uh, and then I had to learn how to communicate that to somebody else who was wanted to help me. So in a lot of ways, it was like a huge research project where I was the research, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the research for yourself. That's right. With help, right. With the medical expert helping me. And I was incredibly fortunate to have people who wanted to help me. And I took them up on those things because I, I believed there was something better. Like life could be better. And I wanted that desperately. Indeed. I, uh, I like how you put it that there's there's no golden ticket and that it has to be integrated. And so having people willing and wanting to help you and then you internally wanting help and yes. be willing to, to, to seek it and or accept it, uh, I think that's very key. You mentioned dancing and, you know, yoga and all this earlier. And I was like, you know, can you imagine Patrick on the dance floor? <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing for me 
God, for, I mean, it's embarrassing for me. I can only imagine how embarrassing it is for other people. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I bring it up is because I like that, right? Yeah. So you you trained yourself to be this hardcore. I did. You know, manly man, and yeah. now you allow yourself to you know dance and be human uh-huh. and feel human. I, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I, I was the same way. The first time I, I really danced, you know, coming out the, the military, I was with my daughter. And so mm-hmm. I was teaching her how to dance. And so it was it was a enjoyable feeling to just let loose and do yeah. something other than be this hardcore or, you know, person. And my daughter looked at me like, oh, my God, you're dancing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. We, you know, we train ourselves. I used to tell people all the time. I was like, this is so embarrassing. I'd rather be in a firefight. I'd literally rather be in a gunfight than embarrass myself on the dance floor. But I did it because it felt so liberating to just express myself. You know, because and a lot of times in combat, you don't get to express yourself. You're just doing what you have to do. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, I pushed myself outside those comfort zones uh, as much as I could uh, because it felt good. I, you know, and going back, I had to learn what felt good. And yeah, um, yeah so- music has been big for me. I played the banjo. Um, uh, yeah. So again, it's not, it's, there's no one golden ticket. And I changed over time. You know, at first I was initially resistant to any medicine and then I became open to it. Um, But, you know, no medicine is going to flip a switch for you. Um, And talk therapy in and of itself is not going to be the the ticket. You know, it's going to be everything all together in different dosages at different times and through different phases with different people helping you. It's a lifetime process for sure. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Yeah. I um I, I wanna I, I wanna talk about you you kind of hit already the signs of a person dealing with uh trauma and grief, you know, the yeah. sadness, the anger, the numbness. Um you even touched on, you know, some of the thoughts of mm-hmm. you know, just not caring and as well as some of the actions, you know, losing 40 pounds, throwing up all the time, probably not being able to sleep, you know, right. alcohol, you know, of course, to, to, to numb the pain and being a depressant. Um, what would you say was like the, the biggest telltale sign for yourself to be like, I right, fuck this, I need help? Yeah. Uh, so in 2011, I was, uh, I was, I was living in North Carolina and I had a, you know, big house at Fort Bragg and I was due to show up to my new unit in Washington, DC on Monday. This was a Friday. And, uh, I was laying on my kitchen floor, staring at the ceiling. Uh, and I hadn't eaten really anything in about two weeks. I told you I had lost 40 pounds. I was throwing up all my food. And I was staring at the ceiling and I said, well, okay, I'm, if I am either going to eventually kill myself because this is horrible and this is no way to live, or I get up and do something and try to get better. And that, so that was nine years ago. And 
I that, literally, that was the first step in the, in, of a nine year journey to get where I am today, where it was like, I really feel like the road bifurcated for me. And it was, I, I wasn't actively suicidal at the time, but I knew that I would, I would be, I, I, I knew that I couldn't continue that way. And if, and if I chose to not do anything that I would go down the road of eventually trying to take my own life. And so I decided to, I did not want to do that. There was still something in me. I don't know what one calls that, but I didn't want to. Um, and so what was the sign for me? That's a great question. Um, part of it was a friend looking at me and saying, do you need help? That's as simple as the words he said, do you need someone to talk to? Do you need help? And then when he said that it clicked, I was like, yeah, I do. Uh, I had, I was looking for help. I just didn't know where to get it. And, uh, fortunately he asked me that question. So maybe it was a combination of how I felt at the time. And then somebody else recognizing it and saying something to me it was both. Gotcha. And yeah. And so laying but, on the floor, right. And, and, and questioning, you know, doing that, that self check, that reflection, you know, let's, let's talk through that. You know, the, the, the feelings that you were going through, and then the, the actual action itself, did you have to pick yourself up off the floor? Yeah, you I know? did. I, I, at that point, I had been unable to do anything. Uh, I, I wasn't really leaving my house. I had zero interest in anything. And it was just, it was pure willpower. You know, it was a singular, it was a moment of singularity where I made a choice. I either get up and I realized it was not going to be overnight but I start on the road recovery, but I had to physically get myself off the floor and handle whatever I could handle in the moment, just to, just to get myself moving. I knew I needed to do something. Um, so, uh, so I did, uh, but you know, the feelings and the actions, intense shame, I would say was my dominant feeling for the next seven or eight years you know, until I was able to relieve a lot of that feeling. And I say shame because I believe, you know, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And I felt very ashamed of who I was and the things that I was ashamed of the things that I had done because I thought they spoke to who I was. And this is all combat related uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was afraid to think of those things. I was afraid to go through the memories of them because I, you know, I was afraid that they would confirm the fact that I was a bad person. So I was afraid to even think about them, let alone, but I couldn't stop the feeling. The more I tried to resist thinking about them, the stronger those feelings of shame were. And um, it really debil- debilitated me. I stopped doing anything. That was, that was brought any meaning to my life. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you put me in the trance because I, I, I seen it, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was right there. I, like, I'm, yeah. yeah. I, I've been right. So I, I know, I know exactly mm-hmm. how you feel. I do, but I do. And you and don't I, forget it either, right? And maybe that's why. It's because you don't forget it. So you can go back there and remember 
what you felt like when you felt ashamed or you were having experiences similar to that. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a tough place to go. Yeah. So yeah. you, you hit on, you hit on it, you know, to begin with, because I want to start talking about support. Yeah. And so in that moment, your first line of support is yourself. And you, you talk about willpower and you talk about, you know, um, like really wanting it. Uh, for, for me, I, I described it as grit. Like, as what? Grit. Okay, grit, yeah. You know, just not wanting to give up and, yeah. and, and wanting, you know, that desire and, and being hungry for it. And I mean, for me, I, I built my grit up you know, by playing football. Right. Right. Get knocked down, get yourself back up, get knocked down, get yourself back up until you're knocking the other person down. And that mental aspect of, all right, I got to get myself up, you know, like that's what what came to mind when you were speaking. And so Mm -hmm. let's just talk about how can a person help themselves in their, their darkest hour? It's a great, it's a great question. You mentioned grit and you mentioned will, I mentioned willpower. I like to ex- expand upon that some, and that's, I, I, I did want to give up. I did. I absolutely did. But I also didn't, I also at the same time did not want to. And therein lies the tension. Therein lies the contradiction in which one do you go with? Do you give up? Right. And I, and I mentioned that I had this bifurcated road where do I give up and go down this road where I knew that was going to lead to suicidal ideation and actions probably, or do I, do I get myself up? And I think giving up would have taken me down the, the road of not of continuing to say I didn't care, but I had spent so many years in the army taking care of trying to take care of as best I could, the people under my command, or for whom I was responsible. And now I didn't have anybody to care for. And that left me to care for myself. And that's hard, right? It's a lot. For, I've, I've always found it easier to care for other people than it is to care for myself. And so it, was it willpower or was it just, I just made a choice to choose the path. Cause I did on one hand want to give up because that's a lot of energy. It is exhausting. Just thinking about doing the work that I knew was going to be required right? To find and take advantage of the support out there because I knew nothing about it. Obviously, if I knew how to do that well, then I wouldn't be in the position that I was in, but I didn't know how to do that well. And so it's like, Jesus, it's like, it's like, take, like I said, it's like taking on a research project when you're already so exhausted and you don't want to, but I don't know what, I don't know, grit, determination, discipline, willpower, call it whatever you want. But I, when I had those two choices in front of me, I didn't, want I wanted to have a vibrant life and I saw so many people around me having that and so I knew it was attainable if I could find the right help I guess I just did I had faith in myself to a certain degree that I could I could make it with some help if somebody would be willing to give it to me yeah yeah you you know what I mean yeah I know exactly what you mean and that that leads into um into the next part so that outside looking in um you know help from from others so what kind of help did you want from other people? I just wanted a place to feel safe. 
I wanted somebody who I didn't need them to ask me questions. If I, you know, I, I find that a lot of people, so I wanted, I got a lot of stuff to say here. I'm trying to frame my thoughts. I wanted somewhere to feel safe where I didn't have to discuss or talk about or even engage with another person. I just wanted somewhere to go. I wanted to be able to go to a friend's house and sit on his couch and eat a bowl of cereal and watch a basketball game or watch a movie and not have to have a conversation about why I'm bummed out or why I'm in a good mood or what's on my mind, unless I wanted to, I just needed somewhere to go. Right. So that, that's just the first level of support is just having a safe place to go. And uh, and then beyond that, sometimes when you do want to talk about things, your you know friends are friends, and friends can talk to you about the things that friends can talk to you about. But friends aren't doctors, and and even if they are, it's not the appropriate thing for them to do, right? Doctors are for helping helping you out, and so. But it's it's good to be able to share. You know, I was having a beer with a friend last night. And I brought up some stuff about my past, you know, the PTSD and my recovery. And he was hesitant to engage on it. And I had to tell him and I coach people along the way now. I'm like, hey, if I bring it up, it's okay. And, and you can always ask a question. And if I don't want to talk about it, I'll say no. But I want to be I want to be treated normally like you would with anybody else. I don't want to be handled with kid gloves. You know, I don't want to be coddled. You know, and so a safe place and so, uh, to go and then emotionally safe. You know, if you have physical safety issues, that's a separate, that's a separate topic, but emotionally, emotionally safe place to go where I knew that it was, it was okay to just be myself and, and not have to be anything else. Yeah. yeah. That's the starting point, right? That's, that's the first step in feeling safe. And I should say that just for everybody that's going to be listening to this and, and for your edification too, is I didn't suffer from the traditional form of PTSD where you have this maladaptive fear mechanism whereby you're, you know, you live in civil society and you mistake your brain mistakes, uh, you know, everyday situations for danger. Like I, instead, I suffered what uh, many people are calling nowadays moral injury. And that was, and it's in many ways, substantively different than your uh, standard PTSD, although it's captured in terms of diagnoses and things like that under the rubric of standard PTSD. But mine was moral injury. It really was. And so that's, that's a whole different animal. Uh, and that's, that's why as somebody who felt ashamed, I needed somewhere to go to feel safe because when you feel ashamed, you want to isolate yourself from your community. You want to pull yourself away because you feel like you're a bad person. And bad people don't deserve good things. They don't deserve a community, right? This is, this kind of falls in line with this moral psychology, these moral psychology concepts. And so, um, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with you on there. And I just wanted to touch on that point because, um, that feeling of shame and that isolation is real. And so, you mm -hmm. know, uh, one of the things that I want to do is help combat that isolation portion, because that's one of the biggest risk factors to suicide. And yeah. I know for me, I remember and going through, you know, a rocky marriage. And I felt like my family was way better off without me because just the turmoil that was spinning on the inside 
I was afraid I was going to do something that would hurt them and just create an even bigger mess. And so, you know, I always feared like having a trigger in hurting my kids or something like that. And so like for the longest, I would, would stay away when I had these episodes and I, I used to have to literally battle, go through the valley on my own solo. And I mean, and it, and it was, it was tough. It was, it was really tough. So when you, you said that, um, I, I definitely feel you on that one. Yeah, man. I'm right there with you, Greg, be honest with you. Um, my number one fear in all the years I spent trying to learn to reaccess, reaccess my emotions was first of all, I had to deal with the anger and the anger stems from the pain of being hurt or the pain of feeling ashamed of who you are or what you did. And, but, but to get there, I had to experience the anger and that anger always made me afraid that I was going to hurt somebody else again. And I didn't feel, I don't, so I didn't, for many, many years, I didn't feel safe even going, you know, I lived in a valley, I think is is really what it was. My, my, my daily existence was a valley. There was no peaks for a long time. And so, um, and I was, because I was afraid that by accessing my feelings, I was going to hurt someone. And did I actually feel that I was going to, uh, I've never, you know, unnecessarily hurt somebody. Uh, and I say unnecessarily, I mean, outside of the context of combat, but, um, I definitely hurt people in combat, but, uh, yeah, I I was, yeah, I was afraid that I was going to hurt somebody if I experienced that. And that even of itself is a shameful experience to think that you may hurt somebody. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're caught in that cycle. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I need, so my thing was I needed somewhere, I needed somewhere to go that I could experience. And, you know, I'm sorry you went through that alone. I know, you know, you're interviewing me, but I got to tell you, you know, it sucks. It does suck to go through that alone. <laughs> it does. It does. I, uh, I, I was saying, um, for me, I, I had this mental picture that, that I wanted. And I honestly, I just wanted to have Christmas with the kids, mm-hmm. right? That one moment, and so one normal experience, one good pleasurable experience. One normal experience. When I yeah. kept, I kept my Christmas tree up from November when we first put it up until I think it was March, <laughs> <laughs> because. I wanted that. I was, I was that determined to have yeah. that one normal experience with them. And yeah. when they saw it and they was like, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> I was like, you guys are having Christmas with them. <laughs> We're doing this. And they was like, all right, that's cool. All right, cool. Yeah. You can do two Christmases. You can do four if you want. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and so that's cool. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I like living here in New Orleans because Mardi Gras, they keep their Christmas tree up and then <laughs> decorate it with all like the money. <laughs> it's a celebration year round, right? Exactly. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. I like Indeed. That. Indeed. Okay, okay. Next question. Right. So this road, this nine year journey to get to where you are now. What's been the toughest part? Ooh, 
I don't know how to answer that. Um, the toughest part was the, the toughest part was sitting down. So there was one particular instance in Afghanistan, one firefight in Afghanistan that was the hardest on me because I made choices knowingly that led to collateral damage because I, I had, I had an obligation and a mission and I had to do it. And, and I would make the same decisions today. I would, but it didn't mean that it was without pain. And I didn't know how to integrate that experience after the fact. And I was afraid of it. I was afraid to think of it. I was afraid to confront it. And at one point about three, four years ago, I finally got to the point where I wanted to confront it. And so I flew down to the base where my former commanding officer who was still in the army, uh, was living. And I met with him and I did an AAR of that event with him. And then I collected all the notes from anybody who was, who was on my team that had them. And there was actually quite a few I lucked out and I was able to recreate that event and go through an AAR with him. And that was incredibly cathartic, but it was also one of the hardest things I ever did because I took the risk of confirming the worst things that I might have thought about myself as being potentially true. Uh, So, you know, I, I went, I spent many years thinking I was a bad person and I said, okay, I'm going to go through this. And I may actually confirm that I did very, very bad things. But when I did, I found to my utter astonishment, um, that I was just doing the best I could with what I had, like, just like everybody else in life is doing. And, um, there was really no good reason for me to continue proceeding down the road of thinking I was a bad person, but that was the scariest part. The hardest part was living it because I believed it for many years. And then taking the risk of confirming it during that experience was, was very hard. Um, but it paid off in the end, Um, but I had took me a long time to get there. Yeah. And, and, um, man, you, so you said earlier, you said you had to experience the anger. Yeah. I definitely agree with you because, you know, you just can't have an incident happen or a situation happen and you just skip over the emotional part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Your body's not going to let you. And so you experience that that feeling or emotion, you know, not for a longer or, or long duration of a time, but you have to allow yourself to experience it so that you can, you can pivot and move from it. And so being able to, to do that AAR and confront it and knowing what you lived before that, like to be able to, to man, to, to take that first step in that new direction, I know that felt like a breath of fresh air again. It was. And, you know, they've come out of nowhere. I met recently with a former uh boss i had in the army who's also still in the army he's a general officer now and um i ran into him recently and i hadn't seen him in 15 years and i didn't realize how much i looked up to him he's also a west point graduate as a matter of fact so a lot of uh a lot of us running around these days doing good things but um he uh i had lunch with him just a few weeks ago and 
I started telling him about my, you know, my, my decade of recovery and I broke down just crying because I got to tell somebody who I looked up to about my experiences and I didn't have to hide it uh, and be ashamed of it. And that was, that was pretty powerful too, to be able to do that. Um, so it gets better every single day. It is not a giant leap forward by any means on a, and for anybody who's listening and to, to save a life, it is incremental steps on a daily basis that leads to um, getting somewhere where you have a tangible sense of agency over your own life and a willingness to engage in your own life and engage those around you in, in a, in a way that allows you to thrive. So it's a, it, it's, it's, it, it, I, I'd, you know, I'd be remiss if I said it wasn't, it wasn't hard and it wasn't difficult, but it is absolutely worth it. I tell people this all the time. I always ask them, I say, is there, if, if, if someone were to tell you it can't get better and there's a way to do that, if you were just take, take those two statements for granted, it can be better. And there is a way to do that. Would you take them up on it? And they always say, yes. I'm like, okay, well then take me for my word. It can't get better. And there is a way to do it. And part of that means just accepting help being willing to. Okay. Let's talk about making amends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hurt people hurt people. That that old saying, that cliche saying. Yeah, yeah. What did you do to to make amends with the people you hurt? I love this. I love this concept. I love the idea of making amends because I think if you do it well, and both parties or however many parties are involved are prepared and have done their own work. I think the relationships can usually can many times get better through, through making amends. So you're not just sort of, uh, they'll, they'll never be the same for sure. Uh, but they can get better. And by that, uh, I, I tend to be a very deliberate person. And so when I went back through the many times I've done this, and made amends to the people you use this word collateral damage early on in our discussion, lots of collateral damage in my life. And, uh, when I went back and made amends with those people, I did it very directly. And I said, I hurt you. I did it this way. And I apologize to you for having to do that. Please forgive me. That's it. That's all I would say. I, I did not try to explain myself. That comes later. Yeah. Um, and, th- and this, that comes through the, the process of reconciliation, but it has to start with saying, I acknowledge what I did. I take full responsibility for it. Um, and I'm sorry. And, and I had to be prepared for them to say, I don't forgive you. Uh, and I don't accept your apology, but I knew that I needed to do it for them and for me. Um, but I needed to own up to it and take responsibility. That's the only way I could move forward. And if it was up for, it was up to them to either accept that or not, but I, I had to at least do my part. Um, and so again, you know, for me, it was just the very clear acceptance of responsibility, um, very short and very brief so that they knew I was serious. And then I allowed them to guide. I allowed them to, um, inquire more if they wanted to know or to explain how I hurt them or, you know, and they became the, I allowed them the, the to take the direction from there. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 hit on you know some some good points. So I'm glad you brought up 
you know, this the clear acceptance of responsibility. Um, yeah. uh, that's key. And so being genuine and being very direct and taking ownership, you know, and then allowing them to kind of set the pace or guide or direction to, you know, to, to whether they forgive or not, or, you know, how you move on. Um, right. My part that I wanted to touch on was not from the person that is asking for forgiveness, but the person that is doing the forgiving. Um, and of course we, we spoke on a classmate earlier uh, that um, committed suicide and you know um, was battling a drug addiction problem and so my encounter you know with this person was 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 very hard they burned me Mm -hmm. right and so and but it, it wasn't something that was just unforgivable you know it was just the thought of Hey, we're we're better than this. I couldn't believe you did that. Like, you know, I need to separate from you because this is this is toxic. And later on, you know, years later when they came back and was like, hey, look, you know, I need to talk to you. I need to ask, you know, for your your forgiveness because this is part of my recovery. My initial thought was, nah, fuck this, you know, I don't want nothing to do with it. Like I'm good, I gotta move on, you know, forget it. And the right. more I thought about it, I was like, that's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, re- regardless mm-hmm. of the hurt that someone caused, that's that's not that's not in my character. That's not me. And so when we came back and had a conversation, you know, like I genuinely forgave him and he mm-hmm. genuinely asked for forgiveness. And I mean, like it was we were solid. And I told him, you know, he was good in my book and I wished him well on his journey. And I'm happy we got to have that moment because, you know, for, for the both of us, you know, that would have just been one more thing to sit heavy on, on our hearts and on our minds. And so, um, to anyone out there, if you have been hurt by someone and, you know, it's collateral damage and they are genuinely trying to forgive you, you have a choice. But, you know, really take a second look and evaluate yourself and evaluate the person, you know, to to, to, to make that decision. Um, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's healing. It's healing. It's it's. I don't, I don't even know the words. Uh, but it's, it's healing. It's healing. It's yeah, it. it is. That's the word. It is worth it. You know, I tell people all the time. This is uh, this is something that I went through too. Is you can forgive somebody and not invite them back into their life, in your life. You can forgive somebody and say, but uh, but here are my boundaries. I don't I don't want you. Uh, I don't want to interact with you anymore. But I forgive you. And that's that's pretty parsimonious, but it's, you can have that. And, um, you know, I've done that in my life where people who have hurt me and asked for forgiveness, I gave it to them, but I also recognize that I didn't want them in my life more. And it wasn't uh, cutting them out. It was just saying that here's, here's my preference. Um, now I, 
I want to pick up on your thread and say, and I, and I only offer that because I think so many people conflate the idea of saying, if I forgive somebody, I then have to open my life back up to them again. And I'm not sure I'm ready to be hurt again. And, and I think you don't have to be open to being hurt again. You can forgive them. And by forgiving them, free that person who has hurt you and also free yourself from containing and holding on to that anger and that grudge or that blame or resentment, free yourself from that and not open yourself up to it anymore. And so I think if, I think if you can separate those two, you can, there may be, maybe there'll be more forgiveness in life, right? Because people, there there comes less risk with it, you know, but that's up to you to choose how you want to do that. Indeed, And, And you can be incredibly kind you can be incredibly kind to another person in doing that. And that's that in itself is powerful. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Last tough question. Yeah. Because you, you hit on, you know, what it took for you not to give up. You talked about correcting some of your destructive behaviors. Right. So, do you feel like you have to wait until you're at your darkest hour or upon your darkest hour to make a change? Like, like we hit bottom. That's a great question. Um, you know what? You don't. But I, for a long time, did. I used to feel bad every time I went into my psychiatrist's office. And I, would, I was like, I don't have anything horrible to talk about today. You know? And I would feel bad going in there as if I didn't have something, like, really dark to talk about. Uh, and that started to happen more, you know, five or six years in when I started to have, you know, advanced through my recovery process. Um, and I was, you know, and I would have moments of, oh man, you know, things are pretty good. And so, um, but that doesn't mean you can't continue the process. And so, no, you do not need to wait. I think, you know, what, what is therapy, but having a someone professional who talks to you and helps you helps guide guide you through your life. Yeah. There, there are, there are professional psychiatrists that provide medicine and, and they, and they, and they manage that and they manage symptoms and things like this, but on the whole talk therapy is somebody who talks to you. And I think relationships are inherently healing a good, true relationships, true engagement is inherently healing. And, um, so don't wait, you know, if you have a question about, anything about work, about your feeling you're having or something, uh, you know, I would get in and talk to somebody early. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to the original questions you asked me, what are the things I had to learn? Well, one of the things I had to learn was set my pride aside, set your pride aside. No one, no one who is proud has ever accomplished too much in life because that pride's going to get in their way. Um, you've got to set that aside. And so, um, you just kind of, um, yeah. So no, I mean, simple answer is don't wait, don't wait till you're your worst. I mean, you don't let, you don't run your vehicle down to the wheels before you go get it. You get it serviced, right? You don't, don't do that with your body or your mind either. Right. <laughs> true, true. I'm sitting here taking notes, man, putting things in my toolkit. So this is, this has been yeah. an awesome conversation thus far. I feel bad. Cause I got you sitting in the dark now over there. <laughs> yeah. It got dark. I feel bad. Cause I, hopefully you're not going to play the video. Cause I'm like, Oh man, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you have to give me, I can turn the light on. I just got to, the whole time I've been like having anxiety. Like I gotta go turn the lights on. 
Go ahead, don't turn the lights on. Come okay, back. all right, yeah, I'll just, it'll just take a second. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little better. There we go. We got a new day. We got some light over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Good deal. All right, all right. So uh, we're, we're wrapping up, getting close. Yeah. Um, last couple of things I wanted to talk about was getting professional help. Did okay. the person that you received help from, the clinician or psychologist, uh, did their race, gender, or background play a part in in how effective your treatment was? I'd say, I mean, I don't. That's a great question. Like I said, the, the guy that I had for the first six years was a was an Orthodox uh, Jew, uh, and I think the view, you know, the traditions and thoughts in the Jewish community, uh, I found immensely helpful to me because in many ways they're very different um, than the community in which I, I grew up. So do I, do I think it played a role? Absolutely. I absolutely. And, and I, and it, it's interesting. And I think maybe it was just fortuitous for me because I've always um, been very interested in the Jewish community um, in the Jewish traditions and culture. Um, so I, my, it was incidental that my clinician was, you know, came from that community, but um, I, I think it played a, a huge role in my recovery, but it was not something that really ever came up though, between the two of us. He was just another guy sitting across the room for me in a chair, having a conversation. It would truly was just that simple. So I don't, I don't know what the, what, what the impact of his different culture was on me other than I think I, I appreciated it. Uh -huh. yeah. it's, it's funny you bring it up because I was, you know, I, I do my research and I'm learning, you know, like I'm forever, like, like learning. And yeah. This was the second time this week that the Jewish culture came up when it came to uh, certain principles and values. And so mm -hmm. uh, one of the values was wanting to see good in others more than themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and putting action and passion to that. And so, like, it... it it kind of makes sense when I hear you say it, you know, after what I, I, I've read to be like, okay, okay. I, I see what they're talking about now. So, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, Yom Kippur just ended. And, and I think, you know, in the Jewish community, there's a big tradition of making amends and atoning for one's um, behaviors in life. And so um, that's really big. Um, and, and, you know, in a lot of what I discussed in the room with that clinician, those first six years, a lot of it was, came directly out of um, the Talmud and Jewish thought and tradition. And I found it immensely helpful to me. Yeah. And um, so um, not surprising to hear you say that. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What advice would you give your younger self? Uh, I thought about this because I read this question. I wouldn't give myself any advice. What I would do is give myself someone to talk to. Because I don't know that there's like big principles that you can give somebody and say, hey, listen to, listen to this advice I'm going to give you because this is going to carry you through all, all these experiences in your life. That, and things like that are just, they're too simplistic. They're too, they, they reduce life to to too little of what it is um, reduces the complexity of life. But I, I would have given myself somebody who was interested in me as an individual separate from them who wanted to talk to me and find out things about me 
because I was interesting and because I was worth it. That's what I would have given myself. Um, and that's what I try to give everybody that I interact with in my life because what greater gift can you give somebody else to say, Hey, you're important to me. And, and, and how do you show someone that importance by paying attention to them? That's how you show them. Um, and that's, so that's, I wouldn't have given myself any advice other than I might've just paid, I might've just paid attention to that kid and, um, and then asked him questions about what was going on. And yeah. I, that's, that's what I would have done. Man, that's, that's, that's powerful. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I hope yeah. I can I think you are doing that, right? I think you are, <laughs> right? You're trying to help. I mean, this is what I gathered. I wondered what we were getting into with this podcast interview. I was really excited to do it, but you, you made it really clear up front. It's to save a life. And I think, and I hope anybody who's listening to this will realize that there are other people who have been where they are, not in their specific circumstance, but emotionally, psychologically, they were there and it's possible to get out of it and people want to help and they, and they will give it to you. And, um, and that recovery is possible and that, and I'm sure this will save a life. So I'm, I, uh, I hope so. Indeed. Okay. Last question. Yeah. Do you see your growth? Do I see my growth? Mm -hmm. Very incrementally. I, it's hard to see, but I, if I compare myself to five years ago, absolutely. If I compare myself to yesterday, mm, not so much, but, uh, do I see my growth? Um, I do. I feel my growth more than I see it. You know, there's a, only the person living life can tell you the difference between depression, being sad and being depressed, being angry and being enraged. You know, it's a matter of quality and quantity. And um, for me, I do, I don't see the difference, but I feel the difference. Um, I think other people have said that they see the difference in me, but um, one of the things my caregiver uh, or my clinician uh, told me was that, you know, anytime he found himself paying attention to himself, it was a red flag for him. So I, you know, I kind of taken that to heart and it's like, um, to the degree that I'm self-reflecting, it's because I'm trying to learn something, but, um, you know, I rely on my friends to tell me how I am. Um, I can, I can tell you, I feel substantively different my, and my friends tell me I'm a lot different. So, so I think that gives you the answer. I appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking with us. I know we've been trying for a couple of weeks now to get on the show. Yeah. We finally yeah. made it happen. So this, this was amazing. And I'm, I'm so yeah. glad we pushed through uh, to get it, man. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Greg, thanks for having me. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me the questions that you did. And hopefully we, we've made a difference. Indeed, indeed. Okay. So for all y'all out there, this is Patrick and Greg telling you to stay safe, stay focused, and stay engaged. Yes, sir. Peace. You've been listening to Guards Down with Greg.
Greg Washington. PTSD and complicated grief are very real. About 8 out of every 100 people will have PTSD at some point in their lives. About 20 to 54% of people with complicated grief will simultaneously suffer from major depressive disorder. And that's why shows like this are hugely important. Raising awareness for PTSD and complicated grief. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, hook up with us at guardsdown.com, weareiron.org, on Facebook at Guards Down, and find us on YouTube and Instagram.